0: everyone. And welcome back to another episode of the Progressive Bitcoiner. I'm your host, Trey Walsh. And today we have on the show, Natalie Smolensky. Now, Natalie is the executive director of the Texas Bitcoin Foundation. She does work with the Bitcoin Policy Institute. She's an entrepreneur, I'd say a historian, anthropologist, uh, political theorist, uh, and, and so much more. And this conversation was probably everything you'd expect from Natalie. And more, we talked about so many different things in terms of global affairs, in terms of actually creating a science out of the politic, in terms of a paper that she's working on for the Satoshi Papers, which will be a book uh, issued and coming out sometime in 2024, which we and and she will keep you all posted on. So this was just such a a fantastic conversation um, talking about the, the anthropology of money and creating an anthropological theory of money and how important that is. Um, We talked about so many things in this podcast and really focused so much on how to live as a society, um, global affairs and how to interact on the globe and just the changing world order, I'd argue that we're experiencing right now and going forward uh, with many, many world wars occurring and so many different things happening and where there may be hope to be found going forward, um, especially in a day and age when hope can be hard to find with some of these hard things. So this was a challenging conversation. It was many hard and difficult topics uh, that we talked about. So if you're listening to this, this podcast and you have any feedback on it on this episode or want to get in touch, please do. You can reach out at hello at progressivebitcoiner.com. And I'm sure Natalie would be more than open to hear from you as well uh, with any thoughts. But please feel free to follow along with Natalie. She's one of my favorite voices in the space and is just really, really smart with how she approaches all of these different things. So this is a really fun uh, conversation for me as well, being someone that is steeped in social theory and political theory and all of these things. So it was a pleasure to have Natalie on and we'll be sure to do this again sometime. Um, so thank you so much, Natalie, again for coming on. And also I wanna mention our promo links in our show notes as well that you can find to Bitbox and SaaS Mining for discounts on those products. So be sure to check those out from our amazing sponsors. And then we also have something new that we're engaging in. So uh, for this episode and going forward, this is the first of many shout outs that we'll be doing from our Geyser Fund. So these are folks that have projects or books or different things they want to get out as well as supporting our podcast in the process via our Geyser Fund. So if you're interested in doing a shout out or having a shout out or any other ad opportunities, you can head to our Geyser Fund, which is also in the show notes to figure out how to support our podcast and also uh, get your project or initiative out to our audience. Uh, so this week is Tim. So I actually, I've gotten this book from Tim. and just wanted to give a shout out to Tim. Uh, history echoes Bitcoin here. Um, so really excited to share this project with you and share this book with you. And I've got a little excerpt uh, for, from Tim to give a shout out to in terms of his book. Um, so we'll be sure to include this in the show notes as well for you to go and purchase so history echoes bitcoin serves as a connection between history and the properties represented in bitcoin of those are permissionless gaining consensus decentralization trust minimizing censorship resistant open source collaboration immutability and scarcity scarcity this book aims to show how the properties that give bitcoin its value are each individual individually beneficial and collectively compelling zoom out uh, awesome excerpt From Tim there. So be sure to get his book, History Echoes Bitcoin. Um, We'll include the Amazon link and other links as well for you to purchase that. And thanks again, Tim, for being the first shout out supporter. And we'll be sure to post this across our socials as well. All right. A little bit longer intro than uh, usual this time around. Thanks for for sticking with us. Um, Enjoy the episode and we will see you again next week. Hi, Natalie, welcome to the Progressive Hi, it's Bitcoiner. great to be here. Absolutely. I'm honored to have you on. I think um, I've learned an incredible amount from you and I know so many other people are. And this conversation too, um, I really love when we get to explore humanity stuff on the podcast. I'm not technical. I think Bitcoin has taught me to be a bit more technical so I can fumble my way through things, but talking about philosophy, history, sociology, I just want to nerd out in this in this episode on all of those things. Um, now, before we jump in, though, a lot of people will know who you are, but for those that are trickling in more and more to the podcast, uh, do you want to introduce yourself, um, who you are, maybe a little bit of your background and, and what you're focusing sure. on?
1: Sure. Um, so I'm a scholar and entrepreneur. Um, back in 2016, I co-founded Uh, a company that built the first generation of um, digital identity standards anchored to Bitcoin. Um, We were one of the the first Bitcoin-oriented SaaS companies in the world. Um, Exited that company in 2020. Uh, I continue to do business development uh, for enterprise software at the acquiring entity. And uh, I also have a background as an anthropologist and a historian. Um, So I'm very focused on um, political economy, um, theory of self and society, Um, and I am the founder of the Texas Bitcoin Foundation, which is a research-oriented 501c3 that is putting out uh, original research about Bitcoin and political economy. So our first book is coming out next year, The Satoshi Papers. Um, I have an essay in that book, as do a number of other prominent Bitcoiners. Um, so uh we're looking forward to uh bringing some of that research and education mandate uh to the community
0: yeah, that's awesome and i and I know I posted on social media this morning. I mean, at the time of this r- recording, it's you know early mid November, so when people listen out, but there are a ton of books coming out for twenty twenty four with guests that I've had on with kind of murmurings I've heard of, maybe maybe not, so it's gonna be a really exciting time for what I'm hoping will you know obviously number go up stuff with bitcoin will bring in more mainstream interest but i think there's a lot more scholarly work taking place in bitcoin than ever before whether it's on the environmental front on the social humanities front economics so really excited for for those things to come out next year i think that'll bring a whole new wave of interest in, in bitcoin as well and um you were so gracious to send me a chapter kind of what you've been working on for this book that i was able to read through for this conversation and um it's a lot. It's heavy. It's it's good, um, but I definitely had to comb through it very carefully when I was reading through. It. And I was I was nerding out. I mean, my my happy place is social theory and exactly some of the stuff that you were you were writing about. But I thought it was an ex- a great examination of money, of an anthropological case and view of money. Some interesting thoughts on David Graeber and all of that stuff that will. We'll get into and um, even mentioning you know some some Twitter fighting that happened. Uh, I yeah. thought it was really interesting as well. Some of the conversation that happened a few years back um, with with Graber and others. But you know I, I'm really you know I, I rarely talk about very intentionally um, you know price of Bitcoin in the show and things like that. I think something I'm really looking forward to next year like all of these books that are coming out, all of the human rights use cases, all of the environmental use cases, and you know something that's really important you know for our progressive audience to to kind of understand most people in the world don't think about what is money in, in general and how to articulate things like that um so i know from your point of view when you're when you're focusing on bitcoin or thinking about bitcoin where is the most comfortable place for you to come from on this i know you have an anthropology background you have a history background you have so many things i think that are converging right i'm not sure even what you would necessarily label yourself in terms of scholarly output, um, it all converges. But that's, that's mm-hmm. Bitcoin as well. It's so many converging worlds. So it's hard to label one. But when you when you look at Bitcoin, what's, your, what's one of your favorite ways to, to look at Bitcoin? Or what lens do you use to, to analyze Bitcoin? And what do you enjoy writing about most?
1: Well, I, I approach Bitcoin from um, a social theory standpoint. So obviously very interdisciplinary. Um, I myself have an interdisciplinary background um, in anthropology, history, philosophy, um, you know, disciplines that are sometimes referred to as um, political economy, political theology. So, you know, we don't we don't really have a science of the social um, or a science of the political in the same way that we have, let's say, a science of biology. Or a science of physics, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, one of one of my core interests spanning my career has been to move us progressively towards a science of the social. Um, but that is no small feat, um, and so at the moment, I'm sort of surveying what has been said across various social scientific disciplines and the humanities about um, the intersection of technology and society and kind of gleaning these observations into what I take to be uh, a point of departure so a, a coherent theory of money which I'm starting with in this book which is a departure point for a theory of technology and society.
0: I'm curious too, for my own interests. So I was looking into a little bit more of your background and some of your education and things like that. Going from a a PhD, where, correct me if I'm wrong, focusing your dissertation on some mental health aspects, some history, some religion, things like that, and then finding yourself in this Bitcoin space now and landscape, how do you connect the studies of those two worlds and the skills that you learned through that process to what you're doing today
1: well um, my my interest my overarching interest is on the development of human subjects within a social milieu so the relationship between the individual and society which at the youngest ages I mean from from infancy society for an infant is their most immediate network of Caregivers um, and then, as the infant matures um, and undergoes development and various forms of ontogenesis, their society gets progressively wider um, so the question of health and illness is of course not an individual question you know when we're particularly when we're talking about something as um, diffuse as mental or psychological health, what we're talking about is the health of the social milieu in which the infant, the child, the person is coming to be. Um, and so that touches on everything from forms of domination, submission in the family of origin, um, to the economic system in which that family is embedded, the political system in which that family is embedded, um, all of these sort of concentric circles of social organization and transacting um, impact the developmental trajectory of the human person. And so when we talk about something like political reform, the question is, reform toward what? And generally, you know, people who are activists or who have a political point of view are functioning from some implicit notion of health, of what health is and what illness is. But they don't have a theory of it, they have a feeling of it. Um, and so, part of what we need when we talk about a science of the social or science of the political is we need a theory of the healthy community um and by proxy the healthy individual um so all of these questions you know when we talk about questions of values principles ideal states ideal on the basis of what at the end of the day there has to be a scientific account for those values and that does not exist yet
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's really interesting and there were a, a few, t- I, I took some screenshots here. There were a few tweets that you did recently um, that, that I thought were really interesting. I think so much of it is in the cloud, I would assume as well, of just what's mm-hmm. going on in the world, um, kind of our global affairs of obviously Russia-Ukraine conflict going on for yeah. quite a while now, although it seems like it was recent. It's been a couple of years, really, yeah. year and a half, two years, I'm not exactly sure at this point. Um, obviously, which happening in, in Israel right now in Gaza, uh, Gaza and Palestine. Um, w- one thing just on the the topic of healthy community, one thing you said in general about politics and most of the people that come on this show, we end up having a conversation about two things almost every episode, regardless of who I'm talking to. It's how do we critically think and the left right divides yeah. are really toxic. Um, Lisa Huff on recently was just like, I've never, I don't understand. I don't get it. I I hate it. And I'm articulating from that progressive Mm -hmm. camp, but I do as well. I, I think a lot of people at the end of the day, whether they're intentionally contributing to it or not, or unintentionally, a lot of people would say these divides are, are toxic in so many ways. And a lot of these divides shouldn't really exist in an ideal world. But one of the things you said, it's a little bit longer, bear with me, uh, the traditional political labels of right and left are becoming increasingly meaningless. That gives us the opportunity to genuinely engage with people and think together, but it upsets partisans who wants to determine in advance who the good guys and the bad guys are. Be skeptical of anyone who talks about what leftists or right-wingers believe. They rarely, if ever, define their terms and often use these words to make arguments from fear or hate. Anyone trying to scare or trigger you into agreeing with them is manipulating. So you were you were touching on some things just there, but I wanted to pull that out. I thought that was such an incredible insight. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that I think you put out there, whether in your writing, through different talks, through your social media, that is just trying to cut through the noise. Like I see that interdisciplinary approach, trying to cut through the noise to get to some truth, to get to some healthy community and just a healthy state of of global affairs. So, you know, even in, when you're asking, what do you want to talk about in this episode? I'm like, well, with, with Natalie, what is there (laughs) not to talk about? Um, just with like the way that you put things out, you know, I see, I think a lot of people see and feel you're really searching for truth. Um, at least I do. And that that's really hard. So, so break that down a little bit more for me, that, that tweet that I just read out to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I'll, In my extremely online life, you know, regularly come across tweets from people that are like, leftists did this again, leftists believe this, or, you know, Mm -hmm. this right wing guy, um, or right wing candidate, blah, blah, blah. Um, And when you actually, you know, look at these people who are referred to by these labels, they are far more complex, and nuanced than than any label could give them it it's a form of
0: mm-hmm.
1: it, it's a form of disrespect to refer to people by labels um even mm-hmm. if they do identify as right or left who cares um what do they have to mm-hmm. say um it's you know there's this proliferation of ad hominem attacks everywhere you look um and mm-hmm. that's obviously not thinking it's just it's warfare and violence um so you know what should matter is the content of what this person has to say um is what they're saying true uh, about this mm-hmm. but the way that you know we've Seem to function politically as a society is through association. Are you on my team or on my enemy team or on some other team that I don't mm. care about? And then everything kind of becomes this spiraling logic of association from there. All you might not want to listen to anything this person has to say because they're affiliated, in my mind, with this team. Um, well, that is, that is, um, those are the conditions for the opposite of truth. Um, they're the conditions for a flattening of discourse. So, you know, we, we have like one association for every label and really strong opinions based on that one association of like a fully flat social terrain where there's no depth um, and it's just these associations battling it out. Uh, it's terrible.
0: Yeah, I, I feel that a lot, even just on this platform, right? Um, obviously, in, in kind of inheriting this endeavor from Mark Stefani, who had been running this podcast since twenty twenty one, and trying to build a coalition of uh, progressives and fighting left fud in terms of of Bitcoin. And then what I kind of encountered along the way, two two different types of groups, I think, in response of I joke with people a lot, like the word progressive is such a weighty word in the United States. Elsewhere, they don't know what it means, right? And then I'll kind of describe what I'm talking about values. Okay, you know, we get that. We have our own version of that, right? And then Bitcoiner can turn off the left or progressives um, from this group, right? So who are we left with at the end of the day? Um, but a lot of times I'm I'm getting more and more people to tune into this podcast or to see what we're having to say because of just that, what we're talking about um who we're talking to and i went back and forth for a long time about you know uh, what do i do with this title mm-hmm. right is this is this title kind of preventing people from accessing content and things like that and i i still do if i'm being honest but part of me keeps it because of the fud narrative with progressives especially heavily right now um so being intentional about utilizing that but there are all sorts of people um from any type of, whether it's bitcoin whether it's the political left whoever that you know, see me associating as a progressive, and they say, "Oh, he must think this," or see me associating as a Bitcoiner. Oh, he must think this, right? And doing those type of things, and rather than just sitting down and, and talking, but we do that with each other all the time, always. Oh, you're a woman that lives in Texas; you must feel this, or oh, you're a man that lives on the coast; you must think this. It it, it goes just so heavily, and I'm I'm wondering too. Obviously, social media plays into this, right? But but from your point of view. How has social media contributed to this? Um, is there is this just the road we're going to keep barreling down in terms of all the ways we gather and disseminate information at this point?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've uh, there's been some research done on the architecture of communities networked through various social media platforms, and I mean. Po- polarization is a real thing. I mean, it's it's measurable. You can see that mm-hmm. based on um, the graph of who people uh, follow, who they engage with, um, you know, these like little bubbles form. Um, and, you know, I mean, ultimately the add- addictiveness of these platforms is predicated on um, eliciting certain kind of dopamine reaction when you either see something you really agree with, um, or something that makes you really outraged um, and disagree Mm. with. So there's a kind of manipulation of the emotional uh, predispositions that people have on these platforms. That said, that's not an excuse for some kind of nostalgia to a pre-social media uh, era like there's there's no going back Mm -hmm. Um, so what is being what is being demanded of us and and I would suggest is actually happening is a new form of media literacy where we are um, as a species being asked to cultivate more discernment around uh, the content that we ingest and our reactions to that content. So you you see it now. I mean, people people are not um, as given to simply believe what they see and hear uh, today as they mm-hmm. were, let's say, during you know when when the Iraq War was being fomented uh, pre social media, and you only had the MSM narratives uh, which were you know parroting the the state uh administration narrative um mm-hmm. and it really took a lot of work uh for people to be critical um now there's profound suspicion um and people do you know check their sources more than they used to and and they do a kind of uh, what i'd call amateur historiography um the problem with with that is that if you don't if you don't have a impartial methodology behind that, then it very quickly just becomes authority discourses. And so your your source criticism becomes a form of ad hominem attacks. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I think what we're being asked to do as technological development accelerates is to ourselves level up as a species. Like We have to become the people Mm -hmm. who can use this technology without destroying our societies, without destroying ourselves, you know, um, frittering our lives away. Um, these are character imperatives. Um, and Mm -hmm. it's unclear what social institutions will form or arise out of this cauldron, um, to develop, the character that is required to wield these technologies.
0: Yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack there. I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of conversations, a lot of media, podcasts, um, financial institutions interested, the government interested in AI. And, you know, there's a lot of we have this media literacy and this constant fire hose of information. And then you're seeing some things like I've seen some different things on, you know, Twitter's um, community notes, right? Those things that have been popping up more and more. And there's different views on, you know, some people are saying, okay, this community note wasn't applied here. How come this one doesn't have one, but this one does. And, you know, so, so that's an imperfect system too, but just the thought of just what you said, people are questioning and checking assumptions. And then in some cases, adding those notes and many of them turn out to be, mm-hmm. those are good notes. Those are good things for the public to have access to besides just that statement alone. So we're seeing some things like that. I think AI has incredible um, potential to help us, you know, rehumanize and which is funny to think about, I guess, when we're when we're fact checking, when we're doing these things. So kind of bringing back some of that. So I'm a a big believer and proponent in seeing that that more and more. Um, but one thing you talked about in terms of suspicion, in terms of you know people questioning these assumptions, right? And I think about how different our world is. You mentioned. Iraq war originally when I was reading the piece you sent over I was thinking back to World War one World War two um and just the information that was coming out and the unity that you know the u s had on certain fronts right there was this unity during World War two for the for the most part um there was a unity out of the Iraq war uh, or out of 9 eleven that produced in large part the Iraq war and kind of going with these reactionary takes and those are two very different examples but less less media outlets, less information outlets than what we see today. And this ties into, you know, talking about an anthropological theory of money, but that that became such a metaphor for me for so many things. And, and one quote i wrote to read out that you sent over, you know, where that confidence collapses, and you were referring to money, referring to state-generated money. Um, but for me, that can go beyond that as well, just confidence mm-hmm. in the state, right? Um, when that confidence collapses, so does the power of law. And as a result, so does the value of any money whose acceptance is highly contingent upon that power. And then my thoughts were, you know, world affairs, world order, high trust money and high trust institutions. Are we in a post-trust age where for me, the reason I'm such a proponent of Bitcoin um regardless of yes i'm a progressive yes all of these things um you know i don't i think we're in an age regardless of your political views religion ideology where trusting in the government trusting in these fiat currencies um with the amount of information we have out there post occupy post edward snowden post all of these things is it even possible um i would say we shouldn't even seek to go back to a high trust or continue this high trust model I would say don't trust verify. We're we're in a place where we don't need to trust. But is there even a way where we can go back to that? Because I, I think there's a real conflict in the world right now. A lot of governments are trying to impose super trust in an age where society is like, we don't trust even the right. bare minimum of the way it yeah. used to be. So for me, just reading what you sent over, I'm like, we're we seem to be in this post-trust era of these government institutions. And it's a hopeful time in my mind but it's also mm-hmm. a scary time in terms of what that mm-hmm. might look like.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, we're we're being reminded in real time of the premises of the enlightenment era theories of limited government. Why um were these early modern theorists of government so skeptical of state power? Well, because power Mm. should never be given the benefit of the doubt. Um, It it shouldn't be trusted as such. Um, So the only way to ensure good government is to limit government. Today, we have government Mm. involved in, (laughs) I mean, would have been unimaginable the scale at which the US federal government let's say um intervenes in not just the Mm -hmm. governance of states but like the the daily lives of individuals across the country like Mm -hmm. they're doing way 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 too much um and Mm -hmm. their first response when there's a problem is that oh we should go do some more stuff um what if Mm -hmm. What if the problem is that you're doing too much? What if the problem is mm-hmm. that, in fact, you're intervening in problems that you don't have the tools to solve? You don't have the capacity. Mm-hmm. You're not set up as an institution to address these issues. Um, there, there's a kind of, it's not even humility, because that is a, that is a virtue. It's just a factual recognition of what can and cannot be achieved using different institutional forms. Um, So Mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, we're, we're living in a world where many people have difficulty imagining the consequences of misplaced trust in advance. They, you know, Mm -hmm. they sort of have to be traumatized by over-trusting, feeling betrayed, used, taken advantage of, harmed in some way, um, before they'll reconsider Mm -hmm. their trust. The the Enlightenment-era revolutions were about the opposite. We start with mistrust, and that mistrust Mm -hmm. never goes away. We delegate very specific powers to the state that are extremely limited in scope, And then we take them back because the source of legitimacy is the consent of the governed, the the people. Well, we've we've given the state so much power that at this point, the presupposition has shifted, that it is the state Mm -hmm. that governs and gives rights, freedoms, whatever, to the people, I mean, it's it's fully backwards now, um, and so there's there's going to be a reset, and it's going to be terrible, and people will suffer.
0: Hi everyone, hope you're enjoying the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitbox. Now Bitbox is a hardware wallet that's open source, incredibly secure and easy to use, and it's what I'm using to safely secure my Bitcoin in cold storage. Now I know self-custodying Bitcoin can really be intimidating, but Bitbox is designed for ease of use without compromising on security. It's USB-C compatible and allows you to easily back up and restore your private keys with a micro SD card, which is really cool. Now you can purchase the BitBox using the promo code TPB at the link found in the show notes for 5% off your purchase. And I really want to thank BitBox for their support of the podcast. And I'm really excited about this new partnership. All right, I'll let you get back to the episode now. Where I'm, I'm always trying to figure out with my friends, with my brothers and sisters from the left, in terms of understanding that we should not trust institutions through movements like Occupy Wall Street through movements like Black Lives Matter, through so many different m- movements. And I'm talking about kind of mainstream progressive left movements in the United States, but not applying that same thing to what we talk mm. about in Bitcoin, what we talk about in the things you just mentioned, that someone would hear this clip or hear a clip of you saying small government and think that is a Republican or right-leaning concept, right? And and you are someone that is articulating, we're talking about like enlightenment era thoughts, kind of the foundation of our, our country, the foundation of like, what makes for a good society, when there isn't a clear cut answer, especially in a place like the United States, but where we're barreling towards is a bit dystopian. And, and again, I, I, I tend to approach these conversations very, you know, realistic a lot, like, like, I'm not talking about, okay, the Fed and the dollar is going to collapse tomorrow, the government's going to be done tomorrow. The world's going to end tomorrow. I think a lot of things, the government will find very crafty ways to keep a lot of things as is for as long as possible, maybe my entire lifetime. Uh, I'm not sure when we talk about a lot of these things. But, you know, from, from your view, just thinking about humans, thinking about behavioral science, thinking about social science, some of the things you were mentioning earlier, you know, where is this disconnect um, coming from with? I mean, bear with me from, Mm -hmm. from the left on some of the things that you talk about. Um, it's almost like a, and then we can jump into some of, you know, David Graeber's lovely thoughts on, on Bitcoin, which is is disappointing because I would agree with him on a lot of other things. Um, yeah, that's something I'm always trying to wrestle with. I think given this platform and speaking to progressives, just friends of my own life and in the Boston area, you know, with Harvard (laughs) just around the corner and, Elizabeth Warren, all just all of it, right? I, I'm kind of immersed in these two worlds yeah. constantly, and uh, beating my yeah. head against the wall about it.
1: Well, this is this is part of the limitation of using a word like the left to refer to mm. a, a broad coalition of people. They're yeah,
0: yeah extremely broad. Um,
1: you know, historically, political currents um, on the left are labeled leftist. Have had both extremely statist and non-statist um, currents within them. So you know, there there mm-hmm. was a a kind of Marxist, um, although not not necessarily Marxian. Uh, Marx was uh, very ambivalent about yeah, different about than the, the state, philosophy. But, but a lot yeah, of yeah. his inheritors yep. Yep. believed firmly yep. that it was the mandate of the state to ensure mm-hmm. um a dictatorship of the proletariat you know to in effect seize the reins of power um of state power and uh impose by force a world in which um mm-hmm. labor dominates capital um you know so there's a long inheritance of that there's a long tale of that um where i i would say Today, the primary characteristic of um, various movements, which could be called leftist, is a focus on redistribution of wealth um, and using Mm -hmm. the state to enforce that redistribution. Um, Mm. There used to be a whole anarchist left (laughs) that, like, you know, we've sort of forgotten about culturally. Even Graeber. Mm -hmm. Graeber may be one of the the most influential Mm -hmm. um, public intellectuals kind of coming out of that tradition. But even Graeber is Mm -hmm. far more statist than his predecessors would be, Uh, even though he calls Mm -hmm. for an abolition of the state. um, You know, Mm -hmm. there's no there's no mechanism by which to do that. There's no like uh, political economy account of how that could happen there is just this kind of utopian vision that you know Mm -hmm. the contradictions of market economies you know sort of marxian will cause Mm -hmm. them to collapse and with them the state um but in the meantime the state should absolutely be deployed um to redistribute wealth um, and guarantee certain mm-hmm. basic standards of living, um, so I think this is one of the reasons it's it can be so hard to have a conversation about limited government. Um, you know, people like mm-hmm. Henry David Thoreau, I mean, from the nineteenth century mm-hmm. classical, like American anarchist, is he right or left? Mm-hmm. I mean you you could read his stuff and um think like oh this this reminds me of Ted Kaczynski um or you know it reminds mm-hmm. me of yep. like hippies like at occupy wall street like it <laughs> culturally mm-hmm. it doesn't yeah. fit um and so that should be interesting to us this is the whole point of exposure to difference exposure to other cultures mm-hmm. difference is not a rainbow coalition of people who all you know believe the same things use the same social media are competing for the same jobs in the same educational institutions in the same center of empire um that's maybe a certain mm. kind of diversity but it's it's a flat diversity diversity is encountering people who you have no frame for you you don't automatically mm-hmm. have a box that you can put them in um and having the right. discipline to um be in that discomfort you know a lot of a lot of Mm -hmm. what motivates tribalism is just people people don't want to be uncomfortable they don't want to do the work of really understanding uh someone who is different from them um and so they'll put them in a box and move on um that's not acceptable in the kind of global society that we have brought about technologically
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're really ill-equipped. Um it, maybe I'm not giving humanity enough credit. Do you think that we as humans, just evolutionary, we're trying to adapt to this? Do you think we inherently are that word's a loaded word, but do you think we're at all equipped to do some of that rationalization and that other factors are influencing it, political influence, in-group influencing social media influence? Or do you think that humanity we're just we're still trying to catch up as a species to figuring out having all of this access to mechanisms of tribalism in this new and amplified way. Yeah. Um th- there's probably not an answer to that. But it, I'm I'm just wondering like, do we still have a ways to go on that or is there ways we can do this sooner rather than later? Because the world's in a pretty uh, precarious place to to continue. Yeah. I mean this.
1: that's that's always the question, right? Is um how quickly can we Develop the character, the the habits of mm. thinking, the etiquettes, the relational skills to um, skillfully navigate the possibilities that the amplification of power, which is all technology is, now affords us. Um, so mm-hmm. you know the. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead has a quote uh from his book on symbolism, where he says that um major t- technological breakthroughs inevitably destroy the societies that produce them um mm-hmm. now what that means may vary from instance to instance, but it's absolutely true the industrial revolution destroyed feudal europe um there's Mm-hmm. i mean there's no there's no going back to that um the atomic age um destroyed a certain form of Westphalian nationalism. We had to adapt to the power to destroy ourselves um that yeah. adaptation
0: yeah i have to i yeah i have to stop you there what did you um did you see Oppenheimer and what did you think of it
1: um yeah Speaking i I did that. see it i i thought it was uh well done. Um, I, appreciated, I appreciated in particular the, um, the way the paint, they painted that historical era um, of the, the importance of the German emigres, scientists, that the United mm, States yeah. absorbed um, during and, and after the Second World War. I mean, we were not a scientific country before, before that era. We had little, you know, yeah. emergent bubbles of of innovation and breakthroughs, but it was really the, mm-hmm. you know, the the mass importation of like the top European talent um, across uh, the sciences, the humanities, philosophy, um, you know,
0: mm-hmm. that
1: seeded the American post war education system um, and scientific laboratories. I mean you look at the history of nobel prize winners many of them are american but they're they're immigrants um and so Mm -hmm. that was i thought the most interesting thing about that movie and and something that maybe many americans aren't aware of
0: yeah it's sorry i only cut you off because you were talking about the mood of uh, the state of the world with the advent of the atom bomb and kind of nuclear age and uh, that film i think for me captured a bit theatrically, yeah. It was Christopher Nolan, and enjoyable to watch. But the the mood shift and helped you feel, wow, what this yeah. did for the world, um, and how it changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think um, one of the things that that's interesting to me, um, and I kind of mentioned this previously before we were recording, but you know, back to kind of this this conflicts left and right. And one of the things that I focus on a lot with, with Bitcoin, because Bitcoin gets labeled as a, I mean, it, it is a commodity money, but Bitcoin in itself is this technological revolution that I, I hear more and more people saying it this way, but I think everyone should continue. It is its own and new thing, right? It, it is commodity money, but it is also in effect, easy payments, fast payments, final settlement, all of these things really important. It does not fit your box, right? Um, we have some historical reference to how we can paint it. Right, but I I love when people are like, "Okay, it's labeled as a commodity. Great." I'm like, "Well, I still don't like that there. It's it's money, though. It's it's being labeled and boxed as a commodity for regulation purposes. You know, there's all of these different things I feel about it. But one thing that frustrates me, coming from the left, is you know it the way it's talked about in economic circles in society for those that care is commodity money is for Mm -hmm. the right or for the U.S. libertarians, and and that's that. So. Bitcoin is a commodity money. Therefore, Bitcoin is for US libertarians. Bitcoin is for those exclusively in the Austrian camp. Um, and just labeling like left is credit theory and that's it. Okay, if you're a progressive, that's what you have to believe in. That's what you have to stick with and right is commodity. Again, just more infighting. So why do you think these just, again, making everything political, making something like money is is political? Um, you know, why do you think that? came about and is still with us to this day when talking about like, yeah, I mean, this, this,
1: it goes back to, um, the, the broad diffuse consensus on the left that the role of the state is to fund social programs, um, and redistribute wealth. Mm. So what that means is, you know, you have to have a certain level of taxation. Um, but you also uh, if you can, need to break break past whatever limitations you may have um, around the money supply. So, you know, mm-hmm. if money can grow infinitely, um, then why can't we just, you know, create a world where everything, where life for ordinary people is fully subsidized um, and there is no more poverty, mm-hmm. there is no more suffering uh, unnecessary suffering um there's there really is this this belief that um we have to have unlimited credit money in order to ameliorate the condition of the poor um and the middle class mm-hmm. and so it, it's not even a theory of money as such the theory of money is downstream it's it's it could be mm-hmm. anything um whatever's gonna get us to the most direct path for ameliorating poverty um and providing social services. Um the challenge of course is that you know <laughs> the world doesn't conform to um what you want it to be. There there are actual material mm-hmm. constraints um around value. That uh, do kick in, and it, it's not—it's not a, a right-wing um, observation to make that the the periods of of uh, robust inflation historically have always correlated with expansion of the mon- money supply. Um, it's just—it's mm-hmm. just an empirical fact. There, there is a, there is a physics of value, um, and mm-hmm. so what is it, in fact? that ameliorates the condition of the poor uh, historically. Well, um, economic mm-hmm. growth is the single most powerful indicator of raising standards of living for everyone. That does not mean it's, the growth is equitably distributed. That doesn't mean everyone's happy about it. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that any particular individual um, isn't going to lose out in some way um but the engine of growth is the only robust mechanism for poverty alleviation and this is this is ultimately what mm. the chinese communist party came to understand um in in the late mao and post mao era they were like you know mm-hmm. we have to grow um there there is no way to lift a billion people out of poverty by just printing money and redistributing mm. the wealth that already exists in our society we have to become a market oriented society but we're going to do it on chinese socialist principles so you know that was that was the entire deng xiaoping era um and you know to a certain extent although he's considered more conservative now you know, Xi Jinping is still it's it's capitalism with uh Chinese characteristic, with socialist characteristic. Um, so there's no way around that, um, which means we have to, if we're genuinely concerned about poverty alleviation, um, think through the conditions for creating a robust engine of economic production. What are those conditions? And in fact, those, those can be defined.
0: Yeah. And I think one thing both camps do, and again, I, I get so frustrated saying it out loud to you even now, and I'm sure you are too, but I, I keep talking in this, okay, the left and the right, because that is the world we still live in. That is the the polarity that I, I'm trying to have a bit of an influence of just from the Bitcoin and, and left space. And hopefully we can then just talk about ideas in, in a less polarized world. Um, but in in terms of both camps, I think they have to. They feel like they have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like there's ways to infuse progressive or left way of approaching solving problems without, okay, running insane deficits. Right. Like currently, if you go on the Progressive Caucuses website, which I did recently when talking to Bradley Rettler, just to you know, we talked about. I broke down some of the like I agree with a lot of the tenets of what they're pursuing in terms of values that I would align with. But they made an emphasis saying focusing on the budget deficit. It didn't say this verbatim, but it was kind of argued that that is a Hmm. racist notion. (laughs) That if you focus on the deficit and if you're overly concerned with deficit spending, I think they might be saying Republicans say, oh, under a Democratic president, you know, we need to rein in the deficit. But when there's a Republican president, you know, Republicans don't talk about the deficit, right? Both parties do this in different ways. Um, But that would probably be the one place that I veer away from the left so extremely on currently is what you just said, like the evidence is the ship has sailed in terms of deficit and money printing that does have an impact on inflation. What is everyone agreeing inflation has the biggest impact on low and working class people? It doesn't yeah. alleviate poverty, so for me, I'm like progressive let's let's get in the corner let's like hey we we have to get away from this deficit narrative, this credit expansion narrative now. Is there ways to rein this in? I'm even saying, can we just take baby steps, right? And those baby steps might include, and this maybe is my more controversial take, maybe we do need to tax corporations more. Maybe we do need to reduce defense spending if we want to fund this. We need to figure out what can and can't we pay for, right? That doesn't lead to the deficit we're in. And maybe the two sides disagree on that, right? No, we need to cut this program and that. But at least then you're not disagreeing on the fundamental principle of what you just described. And we're not, we're not there yet um, with, with agreeing to that. Do you, Yeah, I, I guess I just still, I, I think, I don't want to speak <laughs> for them. I, I think the Biden administration, you'd be hard pressed to see them say, okay, the COVID stimulus packages did not have a large correlation to inflation that happened afterwards. I'm pretty sure they would still articulate supply chain issues, COVID issues, these type of things for why we're seeing this amount of inflation. Um, I'm not sure if anyone, maybe I'm wrong. Someone can correct me or you can correct me. Um, I haven't seen their camp come out and say, yeah, that, that, that's more inflation. I mean, they were pretty adamant at the time. Like this is not going to Mm -hmm. increase inflation. It's going to increase economic growth and do all Mm -hmm. the things that you just said. Um, so I, I guess I still find it hard to believe that they're still doing these same talking points of no, it isn't Mm -hmm. increasing inflation because people's lives are not Mm -hmm. improving. (laughs) I'm I'm running out of ways to to say like this is an issue for the left.
1: I mean, no, Jerome Powell famously in 2019 made a a statement that you know we have to economists need to fundamentally rethink the you know settled presupposition that money supply is tied to inflation. Like we've we've now conclusively gotten to the point where. We've proven that that is not the case, um, and that in fact we can dramatically mm. expand money supply without impacting inflation. Well, they did it um, and they found out um, and so in fact, they were publicly wrong um, and the problem mm. with for the most part the political class is that they they function in bad faith, so they mm-hmm don't admit mistakes, they have talking points to get done what it is they've already decided that they're going to do. This is not a democracy. There is no democratic consensus. There's no meaningful opportunity for pushback. They have a plan that they're executing against. And like in any authoritarian Mm -hmm. regime, they can be persuaded to change that plan if fear of social unrest um, becomes strong enough, you know, if they if they start worrying that in fact they're they're going to start having riots in like big cities um, or you know stochastic violent events um, like the January sixth uprising, like those are the things that make them concerned, mm-hmm. and they will then backtrack. They're not going to admit they were wrong. They're they're just going to try to figure out how to untangle the web they've woven. Well, now they've they've woven a web. So that's the new set of presuppositions that everyone goes in into the the future with. Like things immediately become Lindy mm-hmm. politically. Like Trump's wall project, which seemed to a lot of people just kind of crazy when he was first talking about it. I mean, the Biden administration has just accelerated it. Um they're <laughs> mm-hmm. they're they're just continuing um in the same way like uh you know uh, the obama administration just inherited the war on terror and um upped the number of you know drone strikes and assassinations worldwide like they didn't roll back any of the w bush era um legislation or um just day-to-day practice of the intelligence organizations, Mm -hmm. agencies, um, of our global military apparatus, they just intensified it. And so this is the problem that Mm -hmm. it's the same problem with money printing. Once it starts, it doesn't stop. Um, because the, there, there is a kind of glomming on to whatever is already underway in the people that form. The apparatus of the state that they function from the consensus of their peers, and so it takes a real, like, uh, radical or potentially extremist um, leader to come along and break that. Um, and so we're mm-hmm. we're beginning to hear talk of dictatorship. Um, you know, the twenty twenty five project um, articulated by the Heritage Foundation and um and you know mm. trump explicitly uh <laughs> they're they're calling for dictatorship because they don't see a way to break through this this powerful wave of consensus where everything just kind of mm-hmm. continues iterating in a worse direction that said you know dictatorship isn't a solution um dictatorship just <laughs> Just creates a different set of problems
0: i guess- I guess one of my thoughts is are are you someone that i'll say it very broadly um believes in the- political process at this point in terms of do you think there's actions that we could take to make things a little bit better, or do you think you know we're we're swimming upstream and there's no chance of of getting getting through it um in our in our current state of affairs do you think there's tweaks or mechanisms um you know that's one thing i've talked with a lot of guests on and what i like about this episode is i don't think you've said bitcoin once i've said bitcoin a couple of times and i've talked with many people about one of the big things with bitcoin is we got to talk about the problems in the world as they are right that that bitcoin kind of helps you go down that rabbit hole um but but do you do you see that there's things we can do now to address some of this political nightmare because bitcoin does not Solve that. Bitcoin, there's still problems with power, with political power. There, there's all of these things that um we're hard pressed to find answers for yeah, in this day and uh, age.
1: Absolutely. Um so yes, there are always things you can do. Um, you know, we we make our own history, but not under conditions of our own choosing, uh, as uh, mm-hmm. Marx famously said. Um mm-hmm. so we always start with ourselves. Each one of us has power. Each one of us has responsibility. Um, each one of us has impact. Um, and so we, we need to begin by asking ourselves, how do I live my life in such a way that um, I bring about the world that I want to live in? At least in my own sphere, so we start with ourselves, um, mm-hmm. and then our local communities. That's that's actually where the average person has the most impact, and that's where people are least likely to be mm-hmm. engaged. Um, you know what we're going yep. to begin seeing in in the United States, I suspect, is um, the the cities asserting themselves um, with. You know, courageous mm-hmm. leadership that you know can uh, potentially push back against some some of the trends emanating either from state capitals or from from federal uh, capitals. Um, so, local yeah. involvement, yes. Um, I think at the federal level, there's very little that the average American can do. Um, that mm-hmm. um, even at the state level, it's it's very hard because our political system has been fully colonized by the political parties. And these are, mm-hmm. they're authoritarian organizations. So they're not democracies. The parties are not democratic. They are ruled with mm-hmm. an iron fist by the people at the top of the party who are usually the the party's biggest fundraisers. And so, you know, goes back to money where, you know, the donors mm-hmm. and, the politicians that have the closest relationship with the donors, in effect, set the policy agenda for the party, and actively preclude anyone from running for office that would go against that agenda. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. we're seeing some interesting um, cracks in that happen with some more independent minded candidates um, come out, like, uh, rfp mm-hmm. junior for example um or uh oh gosh um i mean b- before he became the republican party candidate trump um bernie sanders was an independent who mm-hmm. ran as a democrat um you know didn't win so we're seeing some of these like influences come from the side at the federal level but for the most part they're people who either have a lot of money um, or a lot of celebrity or both, um, or have Mm -hmm. lifelong, you know, political careers already in, in higher office. So I think for most ordinary Americans, um, the question is going to be what can be done at the level of my community.
0: Yeah. And back to what you were saying too, about people influencing things. I'm a, I'm a big believer in kind of the charismatic leader (laughs) phenomenon uh, throughout human history it's it's these interesting things of you know as a big Bitco- as a bitcoin a fully consumed you know don't trust verify in a, in a lot of areas a lot of places um but what's interesting like bitcoin for example satoshi had to create the white paper right Th- there's these people that have to step up and do things declaration of independence <laughs> jesus of nazareth gandhi you know these charismatic leaders that i'm a big proponent of that propelling human history um in those different moments. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of, comes of that, you know, <laughs> who steps up in different places around the world to do these different things. Um, someone stepping up, doing the right thing and then stepping away, right. Creating that, creating that movement, creating that technology, whatever it is and stepping away. Um, that's something that for me, it's not necessarily a science, but one thing I'm like, you know, that, that throughout human history has seemed to be yeah. in- intact. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, like so many great examples of, without that moment or action, that happened to be the person that stepped up. So, looking for people to do the same in this day and age. And do you think that um, that is something that's harder and harder? Do you think it's easier with the uh, information dissemination technology use we have going on today? You know, how do you view those type of of movements going well, forward?
1: Well, I mean, there, there's no shortage of charismatic leaders. The question is just what are they leading us toward? um i mean I, I would suggest that right you know america overflows with charisma we we live in a celebrity mediated culture where like you know everyone's trying to be famous um everybody's trying to be rich um and everybody you know thinks they know what's best for the country and you know they just need personal power to make that happen, um, and so mm-hmm. it's very rare that you encounter a someone who is a charismatic leader, but also selfless enough to give up power that they may have accrued or created the conditions for. Um, that is very rare. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and do you, it's been a talking point in politics for a long time, but do you ever feel, you know, this next election? I mean, the the left has been very notorious of it. Um, yeah, Hillary Clinton, especially in her campaign that ended in failure, obviously, to to Trump in 2016, constantly talking about, we're in the fight for our democracy. You know, this is, this is it. This is the election year after year. And um, I think, I would hope, most people have caught on at this point. <laughs> most of the general population is like, you said that the mm-hmm. last time and the time before that and the time before that and the time before that. Um, is there any fear? Not, a, not on a, you know, if so-and-so wins or this person wins, but just in general, the more we get towards some of those things that you're saying people are articulating, we need a dictator, yeah. we need a benevolent king, You know, those things, this next political cycle, regardless of which party wins, right? Because I think both have totalitarian tendencies um, in different regards, maybe are similar in a lot of ways. Do you worry about those things um, heading into political uh, elections or systems, or do you think it's just, you know, a bit of <laughs> a bit of marketing from different yeah, political? No, camps? I
1: mean, I mean, the 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 structure of the state is at this point um, totalitarian. There's there's no doubt about it. They have mm. full visibility into. Um, Everything you do digitally um, you know they uh may not want you to know all of that, but then once it becomes public, you know do they roll it back? No, Congress just passes legislation authorizing what the state was already doing um, you know there's there's just today um, an announcement that um, starting in twenty twenty seven uh, a group of allied countries are going to be uh, sharing all crypto transaction data um with with one another. Mm. So tax authorities, banks, police, I mean, they're they're going to know um everything you do. I mean there there is no there is no more freedom to transact. There is no more freedom Mm. of speech. Um, And so if there's no freedom to transact and there is no freedom to speak, um, none of your other rights <laughs> are even possible to to envision um the foundation so, yeah, yeah to your point, the foundations are gone um so the best we mm-hmm. can hope for is a authoritarian state that chooses not to use some of the absolute power it has um and that Mm-hmm. oh is not a strategy.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, oh, it's back to the right. high trust that that we talked about at the beginning yeah. of the conversation. Um my gosh, Natalie, people are going to leave this episode and they're like yeah. what do I do? Um which is no one's intention, but I I think You know, articulating these things, um, an episode that will already be out by the time this one comes out too, was with Jason Brett and Dennis Porter talking about FinCEN and talking about some of these things. We've been focusing on this as well in particular, because unfortunately it's happening on, again, both sides of the political aisle, but a lot of Democrats just going forward with the stuff. And us from the progressive Bitcoiner, it's like, I want to keep saying, no, it's wrong. It's not right. It's violating your rights. It's violating everything. In the Bill of Rights, the Fourth Amendment, First Amendment—so many different things. We need to speak up about this. Um, One thing I want to ask you to, kind of tying it back to your your paper, is I know you deeply care about these things. You deeply care about what a world with CBDCs could look like. Uh, You know that's a that's a minor detail compared to everything you just said, right? Um, I I know you deeply care about these things um, and are concerned about these things because, from what I can tell, it comes from a a place of love and appreciation for the things that we have kind of created in establishing this country and establishing what I know you're pretty proud. You've mentioned before of your Polish uh, heritage and immigration and a lot of the, the great things that immigrants have done in this country and the freedoms that we've expressed and everything you're devoting a lot of your work to. Um, in terms of the Satoshi papers, in terms of your paper toward an anthropological, that word's always hard for me to say theory of money. Um, is there hope, In those kind of theories, and I know the it seems like the point of the paper is really to try to articulate it in more of a Mm -hmm. scientific way, rather than a philosophical camp that we can fight on way, which is the way money has typically been done. Um, Do you see or view that articulating these things might bring about a a world where people are more intrigued about this idea of doing things that are in a less trust uh, society way and more? Freedom for the individual type way. Do you see a direct correlation there, and is there there hope yes. for you on that? Um,
1: so, in terms of what I'm personally doing, you know, each of us is singular. We have we have singular talents, um, passions, interests, uh, proclivities, skills. Um, my main goal is to at least lay the foundations of a science of the political. Um we do not have a mm-hmm. political science, which means that our practice of politics is basically just vibes. Um and vibes yeah. eventually devolve into fascism. Um like mm-hmm. fascism is just feelings, um you know, a, a politics of who's with me, who's against me, sides, teams, Um, and uh, the desire to be um, a terrible winner. Um, And so Mm. if we are to overcome that, to have a more rational, humane future for this species, then we have to begin seeing um, society and and politics scientifically, which is the opposite of Mm. what many romantics on both the right and the left want to do in fact i would suggest this has been yeah. the most um important failure of the humanities and the social sciences in the west over the past century is that their takeaway from the second world war was we need to mystify humanity even more um and retreat into a kind mm. of politics of um aesthetics and you know Feelings, and you know, state-led redistribution of wealth, <laughs> like the, a kind of religious commitment mm-hmm. yep. to Marxism, um, that is, you know, ultimately just like vibes. Um, so yeah. there has to be rigor. Um, and
0: I'm only laughing because I'm thinking of like majors in colleges being called political vibes yeah, yeah, instead it, of political it, science. Exactly. I majored in political exactly. vibes. And it's like that's so real because I was a pol- I was a poli science sociology <laughs> major, and I'm like, yeah, that that's like yeah. I was in political vibe no, <laughs> classes and, and for sure. You know, men, many
1: of the critiques uh, coming from the right about the leftist academy, they're not wrong. There is definitely a kind of yeah. indoctrination that happens. There is a team based view of the world. Um, you're you know on mm-hmm. our side or you're a bad guy. Um, there was a lot that, you know, a lot of hostility that I personally encountered um, for having political views that might have differed from other people in the academy. And, mm. you know, then just indoctrination that I underwent that uh, I've had to literally mm. like, painfully think my way out of um, post college, post grad mm. school, as an adult. Um, so I think our systems of higher education are not equipped to develop a science of the political, um, which is one of the reasons Mm -hmm. that I function as an independent scholar. Um, But that's not an excuse to be less rigorous. That is a prompt to be more rigorous.
0: And what's nice too, and I hope people can glean this, even if there's, um, it's so funny. I've had different. With this show in particular, you know, we try to have so many different conversations, so many different people. I don't ever care or really ask. Sometimes I know people's personal politics or, you know, all of that, whatever. Sometimes I have people say, oh, that person was too of of the left. That person was too of the right. You know, some feedback I get of the show. And I'm like, listen, a lot of the general theme I hope people would pick up on is the people that I'm having on this show are ones that are able to have open and honest conversation. And can start from a place of, we should try to critically think and be independent in thought. Usually I can have a conversation yeah. with someone like that, regardless of what our disagreements are. Like if they're a <laughs> terrible person, sure, I'm probably not going to have them on the show, which I don't think <laughs> well, you're a terrible you. <laughs> person. I think you're a great person. Um, so, so uh, you know, that that's another thing because, you know, some people like, I think regard this is just exactly what we're talking about. Some people will listen to a podcast because they want to mm-hmm. agree with everything being said or they want to listen to a podcast because it mm-hmm. makes them angry because, you know, so some people do that as well. So people listening might've disagreed with some of the things you said, might've disagreed with some of the things I said. Good. I, I hope you're not listening to this show and just agreeing with, with everything. Um, and one, one last point that I wanted to, to bring up too, and, and ask you about, cause I also saw some, some tweets, <laughs> posts, whatever they're called now, um, out as well. And I think it's really pertinent to our, political process um, and the politics that you're we talking about in the vibes is just people's response to israel Palestine I think you had posted a lot in several others about a very common statement which is just mm-hmm. this is this is horrific um people being killed in in Gaza this is really bad um Hamas terrorist attacks were really bad this response and women and children dying is really really bad you know how do you see the world that as it is as it is now, our country engaging in these political vibes when it comes to something as complicated and as serious as this matter for the people that live there currently and for global affairs, whatever may come of this. And, you know, this episode will be out a few weeks after we're talking now. Unfortunately, I think the sim the situation might be similar or worse. Um, and if there are updates to be made, I'll I'll be sure to m- mention that. In terms of any of this and and again this isn't to go into a history of this or your thoughts on this and that and this camp and that camp but just what you're saying i couldn't help but think to bring that up because you know i think if we were able to get into a place where it's a political science it's these things of rationalization our political discourse um, our ways of handling these situations may be better for the world so i'm I'm curious your thoughts coming from that camp that you just described seeing what's happening there um how do you articulate some of that? What, what, is, what is that like well, for you? Well,
1: um, this is an issue that uh, I have been or felt personally invested in for a long time. Um, my undergraduate work was actually mm-hmm. in Middle Eastern studies, uh, lived in the region.
0: Yeah and you mentioned you had been to that area mm-hmm. quite a bit as well um a little while ago and talking about the experiences there as well i saw you post no, about yeah, that which absolutely. was beautiful
1: um you know and and this this comes out of my my family history um you know in in Poland mm. during the second world war um my uh, grandmother's family uh sheltered jews um both uh family and uh partisans who were fighting in uh, mm. the Jewish version of the underground army um because they unfortunately mm. had to be segregated um for their safety um, and uh you know housed refugees my my family fought in the underground army against the nazis um, they their farm was a weapons cache um for the underground army mm. um i mean this this was a this was a race-obsessed totalitarian regime that was dedicated to the project of a mono-ethnic nation-state, um, and and then a broader project of world domination uh, from that center. Um, you know, Poland underwent a horrific ethnic cleansing, genocide, um, which was then continued by the communist regime that took over. So um, there was another set of um, pogroms um, against Polish Jews uh, that resulted in the further expulsion of the Jewish population of that country. My takeaway from that historical episode was not, great, I'm so glad that Poland is now a homogenous nation state, where we no longer Mm. have to deal with, you know, these Russians and Lithuanians and Germans and Jews and Eastern Orthodox, we can now be one of the most homogenous countries in the world, ethnically and religiously. That is not an achievement. It is not something to celebrate. It is not something to be proud of. And so I am, Mm. I approach this conflict um, from principles, again, not from tribal affiliations, with either of the sides of this conflict. Obviously, these are human beings Mm -hmm. um, on both sides. It's the logic of the mono-ethnic nation-state that is the problem. That is a fascist logic, Mm -hmm. and it is one that I have opposed and will always oppose everywhere I see it.
0: And I mean, that, that history, that rich family history, I think it carries through to everything you talk about and do like it's, it's in you that, that charisma for good, it's baked into your DNA. I'm sure you have had to felt that from a young age, um, with all of this. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope that people can feel similarly about that, that situation. Um, and that somehow we navigate to a place that, um,
1: mm-hmm. ends
0: this atrocity. Um, because it's it's really dark and scary right now. Um, is it, one of the big things that's affecting a lot of people and will will continue to. Um lastly, I, I just want to touch on too if there's anything else from from your paper, from the Satoshi papers, any other hopes you have in terms of your your work looking out to the next few months, to the next year with the Satoshi papers and all the things you're speaking on and doing. Um, some some lasting hope for people. Um, in terms of this, cause my, you know, my belief is this is a, a critical point in history, which yes, I know people always say mm-hmm. that there are always <laughs> critical points in history, but a lot of the, what we're talking about, um, there is quite a bit of things that are mm-hmm. going to go one way or another, we're at quite this pivotal point with so many things, whether it's with the U S economy, with deficit spending, which means the global economy, whether it's with these world conflicts, there's, there's outcomes that will happen of these things. Um, of society going forward. what What is your hope that individuals, that we as a, a nation um, would come to some consensus on and move forward? What is, what is your hope for that?
1: There's hope if you embody it. So you mm. are the site of hope. What hope can you be the site of? And and this actually goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The calling, the vocation that is singularly yours, you finding your purpose becomes the foundation of hope for others. Um, so regardless of what is happening in in the wider world, what is it that you can build right where you are today? That others can inherit from you, um, that leaves the world better than you found it, um, and you know that goes for everything from how you live your life, you know the way you you treat others, your personal relationships, the care you exert for your family, um, for your profession, um, but it also has to do with your uh, purpose in. In your in your work, what what are the unique skills, um, insights, and uh, and just labor that you can bring to achieving certain outcomes in your field? Um, and so, you know, I talked about moving toward a science of the political, um, striving mm-hmm. to ground the social sciences in something that is you know more more fa- fundamental than just vibes um that is mm-hmm. many lifetimes of of work um but embarking on that is what gives me hope and i think i think one of the most inimical uh anti-hope forces let's say is the emphasis in our current age on instant gratification on short-term wins um it's not that those things are bad per se, but if you lose the long term view, you've stopped building your civilization. You've you've started taking it apart. Um, so you know the the prevalence of grift. Um, you know of people swooping in to get theirs and and swoop out um, before everything collapses. I mean that is the vicious cycle of destruction of a civilization. Um, it is only when we begin building towards aims that we can't yet see or imagine, and are content with the fact that we may never see the final fruits of our work. Um, it's only then that we actually begin building something at a scale bigger than ourselves—a civilizational project.
0: Wow, that's a that's an ushering uh, <laughs> calling for people who who are who are listening to this episode, but. Um, you know, my one hope on that too is it's it's happened before, right? There's been pivotal moments in history where there were a lot of things that felt hopeless. I talked lot about a lot of world wars. I can't imagine people, leaders, individual families, your family, like people were like, Well, um, we have we have to put one foot in front of the other. We have to do something and channel that hope and see it. And then the world that came after was better yeah. than what it could have been, which could have been <laughs> the end of the world. Um, so if we can get through that, I think we can get through anything. I, I would agree with that. So I think that's a great calling to people. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time. You're very gracious with your time and really enjoyed this conversation. Um, do you want to point people to anywhere in terms of where to follow you, whether to follow any of the various projects you've got going on and affiliations?
1: Yeah, sure. So you can find me on X, um, at N Smolensky. Um, Also at TXBitcoinFoundation.org, so sign up for our mailing list if you want to be notified when the Satoshi Papers comes out. Um, We are a 501c3, Um, all donations are fully tax-deductible, this is a volunteer effort on my part, I don't make money from this, I lose money on it, Um, so any donations or sats that you can send my way. Um, will help us cover the publication expenses of this book and help us get it to you.
0: Great. And we'll, we'll make sure all of that's in the show notes too. So people can please donate, support this work. Um, and thank you, Natalie. This was so much, uh, it's a yeah. hard conversation. It's fun though. It's, it, it, it's fun. These conversations are really important. Um, and thank you so much. We'll have to do it again soon.
1: Likewise. Thank you for having me, Trey.